This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we work to end the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real-life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates to debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, scams, and multi-level marketing. Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros, quick housekeeping. I have some stuff to go over with you, and then we're going to get into the episode. So first, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you to everyone who took the time to take the MLM survey Uh, We had over 1,100 responses. I was floored. The anti-MLM movement, the the collective voice, it's incredible. And I am just so proud and so overwhelmed with just, I'm just impressed. Thank you. I am really excited to be able to use some of that to show how activism on social media has really impacted the growth of the movement and how anti-MLM isn't so insular anymore. And it's actually reaching mainstream media and you're seeing it on TV and, you know, comedians are talking about it. And it's just, it's more commonplace now than it ever has. And because of that, the DSA is getting a little nervous. Uh, And so I'm really excited to show that data. It was incredible. Thank you. You guys are... (laughs) I will never be able to say thank you enough every single time that you guys help. Like this is just more advocacy and activism in the anti-MLM space. And I am just so proud. Um, And then to segue into what I'm doing. So at the MLM conference, if you haven't signed up yet, you absolutely can. It's free. It's virtual. And you can sign up and register at www.mlmconf2023.org. Totally free. Head over there, check that out. Um, and for all of you who listen in real time, if you are interested in being a part of my presentation, I would absolutely love to share your voice. You can send me an email with a statement that I can read for you. You can send me a speak pipe message that I can use. If you've ever created an anti-MLM video on social media, you can send me an existing video. Or if you just sort of want to look into the camera and give me your two cents or your story in a nutshell, I would love it. Uh, Send me a video that's under a minute. If it's a little longer, it's totally fine. But I don't want you to feel pressed or stressed. You can head to www.mlmchange.org slash video dash submission. I'll also pop it in the show notes for people that are listening in real time. And you can submit the video there. I would love to be able to use all of these videos in a presentation for the MLM conference, because you are a part of the movement. I would love to hear your voice if you are willing and if you have time. No pressure, no stress. But the link to submit is also in the show notes. And, you know, if you want to do it, I would love to have you be included. I also want to say thank you to our new Patreon member, Felicity Kucinitz. Welcome to the family. And now comes the part of the housekeeping that is going to be um, a little heavier. So I got some news last week um, in the anti-MLM community 
about Jessie Lee Ward. Now, um, I have never really made dedicated content about her, but she has come up in various episodes. Um, She is at the top of an MLM, and I've had several of her former downline on the show to tell their stories. So I'm just going to read a post from Eric Worre. He is sort of like an MLM guy. His name has also come up on the show before, and he's really good friends with Jesse Lee. And I wanted to read this post that he put on Instagram. To all of my friends around the world, I need your help. My friend, and probably yours, Jessie Lee Ward, is going through a serious issue right now. Two weeks ago, she got the results from an MRI that looked bad. So she got a Grail test that said she might have colon cancer. Last Friday, she had a colonoscopy that confirmed it, and the doctor called this week to tell her the biopsy from the colonoscopy came back saying that she has adenocarcinoma stage 4 colon cancer, and it's growing aggressively. At the time of the post, she was having surgery the next day. The reason for this message is that... He wants to ask that regardless of your political beliefs, that you pray for her. Sometimes when we are battling this big invisible monster that we like to call Big Pyramid, there are casualties of humans that that get caught in the crosshairs and um, end up, you know, becoming victims themselves and also villains at the same time. And I just, it's, it's heartbreaking. I've been through the process with my father with aggressive stage four cancer. Um, and it's just scary. And, um, I don't, I don't wish that on anybody at all, regardless of whether or not we believe that MLM is a pyramid scheme or not. So I'm sending as many good vibes as I can to Jesse Lee and her family. And, um, you know, just know that, that you have our support and solidarity in your time of healing and um, that we're thinking about you. And then lastly, um, some content warnings about this episode. Um, it's a, it's an incredible episode. Really. I feel like I say that all the time. It was one of my favorites and Eden is actually going to be joining us on the Patreon this weekend. So if you are a member, you can catch that live. And if not, it will be available evergreen for you to check out and watch whenever you would like. Um, in this episode, we talk about her coming out story um, that's juxtaposed with her abusive relationship with her mother. So we're going to do more of like a cult of one. Uh, we talk about being queer and having complex PTSD and feminism and all kinds of things. And so I just want to let people know that have been through this sort of thing that um, we do we do talk about quite a lot of stuff, uh, but it is a great episode and it is definitely worth a listen. I just wanted to give you a heads up that is a little heavy at, at some points. Other than that, I hope you have a beautiful week and I will see you next time. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. We are going deep again. You guys, we're talking about all the different intersectionalities with MLM and all of the different things teaching red flag education. Because if you can see the big picture and go, look what's happening in my MLM, you might start seeing it in smaller instances in your life. And so I really want to welcome to the show this beautiful human that I just met. And I, I already feel like we're great friends. Eden Robinson, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk to you. You wrote a book. I read the first chapter. 
I connected. I it's I really like it. It's called Becoming Shameless. Yes. And and so we're going to we're going to talk about your story and everything. We're going to talk about unlearning shame. We're going to talk about so much. You guys strap in. It is going to be just a really fun learning journey. And I, I'm excited to go on this journey too, because I, I'm right along with everybody listening. So Eden, I'm going to have you take it away and tell your story. Start from the beginning. And uh, when you get to the end, stop. But I'm sure I'll have questions along the way. So <laughs> take it away. I grew up near Boston and uh, I grew up in like a Jewish family. We were we were religious, but we were the least religious family in the little religious community that we were in. I was homeschooled, so there was some social isolation there. And then after my parents divorced, I was predominantly living with my dad. And then my mom found this really wonderful high school for me to go to. I'd been interested in theater. By the way, along along the way, you're going to see so many fruity parts of my story. And it's just like, how did, how did she take 27 years to realize she was gay? But listen, the closet was made of glass. Everybody knew but me for a while. So interested in theater at a very young age, when I was like about 12, 13 years old, my mom found this really wonderful high school for me to start attending. And it was performing arts high school. I mean, that school is where I met the first gay person I'd ever met in my life besides my dad, but he's also religious. So he was really closeted. So I, that was where I met the first out gay person that I'd ever met. And it was also kind of it's where I learned about like different mus- musical artists that I started getting really into. And I just started developing a sense of self because I was able to like interact, regularly interact with people my age and teachers and all of that. Um, so was that yeah. the first experience with any sort of public school and integration with different kids that you had had? Pretty much when I was like very young, I briefly went to like a handful of different elementary schools that just didn't work out. So I have complex PTSD and one of those symptoms is terrible memory. And specifically, like I have very, very, very few memories of like my early childhood. I would say like my like regular memories start when I was like basically 13, 12, 13 years old. That's where I start having kind of memories really I don't remember much but I like briefly remember flashes of like what a Montessori school looked like and you know but yeah but that was like the first like okay I'm going to the school I'm not just trying it out for a week like I'm this is you know I'm going after semester after semester um because that was how the high school worked it actually worked like a college you could pick your courses it was in semesters as opposed to like years it was it's was a, it a really incredibly well done school and I'm so lucky that I that I went there and and to my mom's credit she was the one who found it. Um, and I'm, I'm very grateful to her for that. When I was about 15, my mom and I moved out to California and then she was struggling to kind of find work, struggling to make rent. So she ended up getting a job as a live-in nanny where there was no room for me. So then by then I was 17, that's when I moved in with my godfather in San Francisco. Um, and that's, you know, where I've been since. Wow. So, what yeah. a bouncing around childhood. Yes. And so when I moved in uh, with my godfather in San Francisco, you know, I had been living with mom for many years and that kind of allowed her a lot of control over my life. She had, by then, you know, she had really groomed me to give her a lot of control uh, over my life. She had trained me to trust her more than I trusted myself. And so, you know, when we were living together, you know, I, I would come home from school and I would tell her every 
detail of my day and she would offer her input and you know it, it was it was this very mixed bag of like she would obviously offer emotional support we would have really interesting dynamic conversations and then also as i got older we got into arguments and fights more often and you know a lot of the fights i didn't even know the problem was i didn't know what i'd done wrong it didn't like the whole argument to begin with didn't make any sense to me at that time she was into her version of the Enneagram, which is not the Enneagram, but it's, it's her version of it. And so her understanding is that I'm a six, which means that essentially sixes uh, to her, sixes are very um, intelligent, but they can use that intelligence to be manipulative and to make themselves out to be the victim. Like sixes are the best at sort of being bad people while convincing everyone that they are actually good people. So that's what she convinced me that I was. So I still to this day, Obviously therapy has helped immensely, but like, still, still to this day, I have imposter syndrome about being a good person. I've learned that I'm not the only one. A lot of us have this. Now, you know, I manage it. I have my therapist. I have, you know, reminders from my therapist and from my lovely girlfriend and from my friends. You know, I kind of, I have ammunition to fight those intrusive thoughts. But at that time, I wanted to fight those intrusive thoughts, but I, I felt like I wasn't allowed to. I felt like, I felt like my instincts were wrong. I felt like, yeah, just my, my natural instincts, how I wanted to be, who I wanted to be, all of that, I felt like that was wrong. And mom's expectations of me were the only guides that I could follow. When I moved in here, that force, there was a kind of a forced separation because we couldn't talk for hours while I made dinner. I was living here. And also my godfather, Michael, you know, he noticed how most of the time that mom and I would talk, we would end in a fight worse mom would scream at me so loud that he could hear her just like screaming through the phone and he from the beginning hated that like he strongly disagreed with it and and wanted me to hang up but I felt like I couldn't I felt like I, I shouldn't I felt like if I did that was proving mom right about me being a bad person so in order for me to fix everything wrong about myself I need to suffer and I need to suffer through mom's abuse I didn't see it as abuse at the time I saw it as her helping me, uh, which I think is very common. I think anyone who's been in a cult situation has suffered abuse while simultaneously believing this is what I need to hear. This is what I need to experience. I deserve this, uh, which you don't. No one deserves suffering. No one deserves abuse. Living here and that limited, uh, you know, mom's access to me. And it also meant that I couldn't really spend as much time talking to her. So I started talking to her when I was outside of the apartment because then Michael wouldn't hear, he wouldn't get upset. So that kind of limited be like, okay, if I'm walking to work, then that's when I'll call mom and talk to her. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that, it which at the time I was like, guys, Michael's being so mean. And I was like, right. back, I'm like, thank God. It's really interesting how you're like, I still like, He's like, this is really unhealthy for you. And you're like, I know, but I, I still have to do it though. Cause I have to make her happy at because time, you know, the consequence exactly, exactly. Of not making time, her happy. Right. And at the time I really thought like, no, Michael doesn't understand how bad of a person I am. Michael doesn't understand. This is I've, I've hoodwinked him into believing, into seeing me as a good person, into believing I'm a good person, but I'm not. I'm only the way that I am. All the good traits I have are because mom forced me to be this way and made sure that I was this way because left my own devices, I'd ruin my entire life. I'd be a terrible person and I'd hurt everyone I care about. Wow. Those were the self-beliefs that I was just, I was going around believing, you know, growing up, I was a not like other girls kind of girl. Like I'm, I'm nerdy. I don't care about boys. 
because I was gay. But I just I just thought it was because I was better than all the other girls. I'm not boy crazy. I'm better than that. And at the time, I was my mom was really aggressive with uh, me choosing choosing a focus, choosing whatever my career was going to be. She started pressuring me when I was like. 12, 13 years old. Like as soon as I moved in with her, she started pressuring me like, okay, so what are you going to do? What's your career going to be? For the longest time, she thought I was going to be a writer, um, which I find very ironic now that I wrote a book, but (laughs) for the longest time, she thought I was going to be a writer. And then that moved on to, okay, you're into theater. So that means you'll become an actress. That didn't work out. You know, I kind of lost interest in theater. We would have daily fights, daily fights about what I was going to do, what I was going to focus on, what my career is going to be. Looking back, it's like, I was a child. Let me mess around in college for a few years before I even start thinking about that. Like, it's fine. But at the time, you know, and so I was like, what can I do? Like, literally, what can I choose so that mom and I will not be like literally screenwriting every day now over this? Because she'd call me lazy. She would say that I'm going, it would go into this whole thing about me being unappreciative of everything she's done for me, everything she sacrificed for me. You know, I'm just choosing to throw that all away. Like by not knowing what I wanted my career to be at literally like 16 years old, like, come on, you know what I mean? Your reason not even fully formed. And these were just sort of like intrusive thoughts she was having. And so she felt she needed to bring them up and start fights with you to solve them. I think so. I mean, both my parents had extremely abusive childhoods. So, I mean, the generational trauma is crystal clear. Like it's so obvious the trauma that has just doubled and doubled with each generation. So I was like, what classes am I enjoying? What do I enjoy? And I really enjoyed American Sign Language. So I was like, all right, I'll become an interpreter. I studied ASL for seven years. I became very fluent. I applied to the interpreter training program. Teachers that I had were like, oh my God, you're a shoo Of course, you'll get in. Um, I did not get in. And it crushed me. Like I, one of those, I was one of those like good grades kids that like my, my identity, my sense of self, my self-worth was in what other people think of me, what my grades are like, what my accomplishments are. And so I didn't get this thing. And I was like, I'm back to square one. Mom and I are going to be screenwriting every single day now. What do I do? And it just like, it just crushed me. So in that headspace, I attend some like deaf social event. There's this other guy, uh, he's a hearing guy, but he he had picked up ASL when he was in the army. And so he starts talking to me and I I hadn't really gotten attention from guys before. I just, I think it just kind of exuded weird gay girl energy and it just, you know, kept everybody away. But he approached me. It was just very much like this crushing, I don't have an identity. What do I do now? Who am I? What am I? And then like this guy coming in, being like, oh, I find you attractive. I want to date you. And then I was like, oh, I can be someone's girlfriend. That's an identity. Okay. And so I just lashed onto that. That was a very abusive relationship. Fortunately, it only lasted a short amount of time. Really abusive and traumatic. Also, to my mom's credit, she was the one who saw that things were not right. And she was the one who convinced me to break up with him. You know, and again, very grateful that she helped me with that. It's kind of a mixed bag because I also kind of look like, well, if you hadn't raised me the way you had raised me, I probably would have noticed more of the red flags that he had. So anyway, fortunately that ended. Then after that, I was like, okay, I'm not attracted to men because I'm a traumatized straight woman. Like I'm, I'm not gay. I'm just a broken straight woman. There were, you know, there were some other guys who were very nice, very like understanding good people who were interested in me. I never like... I never looked at a guy and was like, I want to date you. It was just like, guys would just come up to me and ask me out. Listen, when you're a lesbian, but you don't realize you're a lesbian and you date men, 
there's no internal sense of like, you're someone I want to date. You're not someone I want to date. Cause it's like, it's, it's a no to all of it. So if a guy comes up and it's like, okay, well, I mean, you don't seem like an ex murderer. So sure. I guess like there's no internal barometer. And so kind of same thing. Yeah. I just comes like went along with it and dated them. <laughs> One of them actually, uh, cause we got along great as friends. Like we got along really great. It's just like the physical stuff just like, wasn't, you know, and at one point he was like, I think you might be gay. And I was like, what? That's ridiculous. Wow. <laughs> like I said, the closet was just made of glass. Every, everyone could see all of the rainbow flags. Everyone could see it but me. I said, that's ridiculous. I love you. I'm not gay. That's silly. Whatever. Um, so he just left it alone. Again, very sweet, very respectful, very just like, you know. And so we broke up because he wanted kids and I don't want kids. I didn't want kids. So that's, that's an easy reason as any to break up. I like at different points. I was like, am, like, am I bi? I, probably maybe like I was full on. I was like, if a woman asked me out, I would say yes so fast. And the, like, it didn't, I was like, but, like every straight woman wants to date their best friend. Like these are, this is a totally straight woman experience. <laughs> To- I'm, I'm totally I'm totally hetero this is just, like just hetero every things. straight woman uh is girl crazy what do you mean yeah exactly Th- thank is- you this- right exactly so, right you know exactly. you said earlier you were like I was not boy crazy were you yeah. girl crazy I think so yeah I mean like just my freaking wall right she's got Sorry. like pink have- and all these pictures on her wall pink and Kate McKinnon um who are the two Solid. favorite celebrities I that McKinnon. I love and adore there's a Ghostbusters, like with Kate McKinnon, Ghostbusters poster. You can't see, but over here, I have a giant framed poster that I got at one of the pink concerts I went to of pink. So big pink fan. I just, are you kidding? I was obsessed with Jewel, um, Ani DeFranco, Tracy Chapman. I mean, just like dyke music. You know what I mean? Like from such a young age, it was just like how I was walking around in my Doc Martens and my cargo pants. Just like, hoping to get on. a ticket to Lilith Fair. Just, like, honestly, honestly, yeah, it yeah. is, yeah, it's, it's hilarious. like so 90s lesbian vibes, 100%. Absolutely. Riot Girl is absolutely part of my aesthetic and will always be. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Everyone is saying, Everyone like, is like, you might, eh? and right. you're now questioning it and you're asking yourself, am I? Am I? But like, also, like, there's this weird and like, Everyone who's come out later in life, whether they've come out as trans or queer or lesbian or gay, what have you, there's this thing where like from a very young age, you like have the question, but there's like this like automatic like motor that like pops in and it's like, that's a problem for later me. And then just like squashes it down and it's just like, you know, so that it's, it's this weird, I don't know what it is, but like, there's that reflex that I've noticed in like. Just every, everyone who's coming out story I've heard who came out later in life, there's that reflex that just keeps coming up. So that's what it was. Yeah, I think we're, we're at the point in the story where the Ghostbusters movie comes out. It's like 2016. You know, of course, there's been all this like backlash and just horrendous, horrendous stuff. And, you know, I'm a feminist. I've always, I've been a feminist since I knew what the word was. My feminist journey has evolved. I've, I've gained a deeper understanding of intersectionality and feminism and how the not like other girls uh, train of thought is really toxic and, and anti-feminist. You know what I mean? Like I've evolved a lot, but through that, through that learning journey, I've always 
identified with feminism. Um, and I, and I always will. So I was like, all right, this is making man babies cry on the internet. I got to see it. Not only do I have to see it, I want to see it in theaters. I want to give this movie my money. So I go to see it in theaters and, uh, you know, I'm watching the movie. And then at one point, Kate McKinnon, who plays Jillian Holtzman, comes out on screen and it like something clicks in my brain. And I just become, I mean, talk about girl crazy. I just become obsessed with this character, Jillian Holtzman. I've never seen another character like her. I know that Tumblr is like the home of the fangirl. So I rush to Tumblr and I follow every Kate McKinnon, Jillian Holtzman fan blog I can find. We're all sharing like different like gifts from the movie. And then the stuff that's coming across on my, on my dashboard is like interviews with the cast, interviews with Kate McKinnon. And some of the interviews are older where she talks about the fact that she's a lesbian. And I'm like, huh. Meanwhile, also, I'm noticing that everyone I'm following is totally gay. Um, and I'm like, wow, I'm like the only straight woman who's just like obsessed with Jillian Holtzman. It's so weird. And so, <laughs> You're not like other gays. I mean, no. One of the posts that gets shared is a post about compulsory heterosexuality, which is the idea that a lot of lesbians, we don't realize that we're lesbians. And this also applies to queer women. You know, we don't realize that we have attraction to women because that's not really like allowed. Like it's not... You know what I mean? Like we don't, we don't have, we don't see that. We don't, that's not something that's allowed. We're, we're only, we're allowed to date men. We're allowed to marry men. We're allowed to plan futures with men. So that's what we do. And so it went through a, like a list of like symptoms of uh compat, which is like the shortened version of the term, you know, and I'm just reading through it. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> like, Oh, like I remember reading it. just be like, my whole life makes a lot more sense right now. <laughs> What were some of the things that you really connected with? So there were things, okay, like you have crushes, but like you have crushes on men, but only fictional male characters. Like you don't have any crushes on real men. And I remember because like at that time I had a friend, we both had a crush on Jim Halpert, but she had a crush on John Krasinski, the actor. I didn't take like the actual man. I do not find attractive at all. As a fictional character, I had a crush on him. And so that, that's a gay thing. Also just being like, you know, again, like I would love to date, a, of course I'd love to date a woman. It's just that like, that's not like, that's not a thing, whatever. Even just like, I was always, like I always had friends who were queer. Like even the friend who had a crush on Zon Krasinski, she was openly bi. I would somehow find these like gay friend groups and just like be one of the token straight people there. It's, I mean, again, this was like six years ago, but just kind of like similar things like that. Again, another one is like, you're not like, you're just not boy crazy for some reason. Like all these things. I was just like, every single one, I was like, oh, oh, that, that, that makes sense. Um, and then also even like in relationships with men, you get along great, greatest friends, which is like, for some reason, you like, don't want to be physical with them. You know what I mean? Like every other part of like being a partner to them is like, cool, but you just like no interest in being physical. And also by that point, like I had, I'd seen the L word, you know, there was, uh, my feelings about it were, were a bit complicated because there is, you know, as much as I appreciate what it was at that time, it's still a sort of, it's still television. It's still the sort of sexualized fantasy. In some ways it was hard to relate to, but in other ways, I kind of knew that I was like more into it than I should have been. But again, it was just like, I want to watch the show. That's the reason why is a problem for later me. So just like all these things clicking. Prior to the compet thing, I thought I might be bi. I think just 
on Tumblr, I wasn't like, I hadn't seen Ghostbusters hadn't come out yet. So I wasn't like, you know, as deep into, but I was following a lot of like queer gay people and I was like, maybe. And so I decided to like go out dancing because I live in San Francisco. I'm like, well, this is the place to be bisexual. So I went out um, and I ended up meeting this woman who is a gold star lesbian, which is a term that refers to a gay person who's never been with a person of the opposite gender. So she was very proud of the fact that she'd never been with a man. And as we're getting to know each other and I was like, well, I'm bi, I've never dated a woman, but I'm bi, I'm attracted to women. Instantly the energy shifted. And she's like, well, I don't date bi women because I've dated them in the past and they always either cheat on you or leave you for a man. And I'm standing there being like, like, what, what do you say to that? You know, right. I, like, I'm not, I'm not a cheater. I've never cheated on anyone. Also, like if, if you're, if someone breaks up with you, like the gender of the person they end up with, like, doesn't matter, shouldn't matter. Right. Um, so it was weird. Um, and then also like she kissed me at the end. So I was like, oh, are we seeing each other? Uh, but then it like, wasn't. So I was very, I was just like very, confused. very gay and also very confused. Yeah. So, what a confusing place for you to be where you're like, okay, I'm going to try this. I think this might be something I'm going to put right. myself out there. You find someone you're attracted to. You're like, yes. Okay. I'm going to try this. We're going to see if this is what it is. And she's like, exactly. No, I said, wait a minute. You're like, Actually, oh. no, you're not welcome here. Also, when I <laughs> right. had my first, when I had my first kiss with a woman, it was just like the. I was like, oh, this is why people kiss each other. Because prior to that, I just kissed guys, and I was like, well, this is boring. I don't really get it. This is overhyped. I don't Hollywood lies. This is not like the movies. This is bullshit. Kissing is gross, you know. And then a few years later, I was like, oh, I get it now. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester, and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claim standard-approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect effortless outfit. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. 
Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet, and they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM, code MLM. aftermath of all of that I'm just like okay I know I like kissing women and I want to do more of that but also apparently gay women will want nothing to do with me because I've been with men which I can't like I can't change I can't go back in time trust me wish I could wish I go back in time and just erase all the all all the men uh but I mean that. that's so- why eternal sunshine of the spotless mind is one of my favorite movies of all time just erase it it's just gone bye <laughs> exactly just like bye right so then I talked mom because you know she she knows me better than I know myself. So I tell her and her response is, I don't think you're gay. And I was like, okay. And then I just go back in the closet for another like three years. And then Ghostbusters comes out and Kate McKinnon is like, hmm, you're gay. And this time, this time you're going to face it. And so I'm on Tumblr and, uh, you know, the combat post and everything. And it was this, like, everything clicked, but it was also terrifying because I had kind of come of age in like the early 2000s where queer representation, especially sapphic representation. So sapphic just refers, sapphic, I like sapphic because it's inclusive of bisexual women, pansexual women, and non-binary people who are attracted to other women and non-binary people. So it includes, you know, bisexual, pansexual, lesbian, all, all inclusive. You know, in the early 2000s, sapphic representation uh, was very limited and very, very tailored to the male gaze very much for men this is you know it's Katy Perry music video for I kissed a girl it's Britney and Madonna making out it is a performance of hyper femininity and hypersexuality together it's not like a genuine like hey this is my wife you know we wake up and we make breakfast for each other because we love each other like it's not that it's very much like it's objectification very, like, yeah, exactly. It's very like women performing. It's very performative. And so I didn't identify with that. And then also as a woman, like looking at that made me feel uncomfortable because I'm like, that's, it's objectifying. That makes me feel uncomfortable as a woman. There was a part of me that like, did I did identify with it? Cause like, like, especially as like a little gay 13 year old, 15 year old, there's like something that you're like connected with something that's like, okay, I connect with that. But then to whatever degree you're aware of that connection, you're also kind of disgusted yourself because this very like performative, it, it makes you feel gross. So then it makes you feel gross about yourself. And like, it's this complicated just web of shame and internalized homophobia and internalized lesbophobia and all that. 
So when I realized, I was like, oh, not only am I gay, I am a lesbian. I've never wanted to be with men. It was just this, it was a shock to my system because I had to grapple with the fact that I was this thing that I had been running away from my whole life. You know, it's this moment of like, you're running, running, running. And then you're like, oh, and you turn around and you're just, you're just like, okay, I'm here. Like, cause I was like, I, I'm a lesbian, but I can't say the word lesbian out loud. Like it was so, it was, it had, I had so many like shame. It had, yeah. So much shame. And it had such a like lecherous, hypersexualized, negative, dirty connotation, pornographic connotation to it. Right. That, well, oh, you have a father who's closeted and yes. unaware. Oh, yeah. You have a mother who's controlling and homophobic, obviously, to be like, you're yeah. not gay. Yeah. And in, in your moment of clarity, the first moment of clarity you have, you're like this. I'm going to tell the one person who's, quote, in your mind, always been there, always been the voice of reason, who's really just always been the voice of control. I think this is what I might be. And she shuts you down. Yeah. And so you pack it deeper. You take that baggage that's already wrapped in her baggage, that's wrapped in your grandmother's baggage and your great grandmother's baggage that's been shipped through every generation. And you just throw it back in the closet and you just shut the door and go, okay, future me. Let's look at this again in three years. Exactly. Just I've heard the term Russian doll of trauma and I just... Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, imagine like this is what we talk about when we talk about generational trauma. Imagine if this was, you know, you say you don't have children, but imagine that this was just one generation forward and this was your daughter coming to you saying, I think I'm a lesbian. It would be such a completely different thing because you've already unpacked this. You would have been like, oh my gosh, just I love you. This is incredible. Let's talk about this. Like, that's what it should be like. And that's the generational trauma that we're all, I mean, not all of us, more of us really should be, but the ones that are unpacking it, like that is what we're going to be providing to our children and their children, these future selves of our generations and our our family tree. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. 100%. 100%. How different would your life look? Because you would have felt so much more welcome at 10 years old to say, mom, I have this feeling. What does it mean? As opposed to hiding it and feeling shame and packing more shame on top and then having to learn how to not be shameful of just being a human. Exactly. Right. Just being myself, just being myself. Yes. A hundred percent. I am sitting there just like kind of deer in the headlight, sort of shock of all of that. And Kate McKinnon was really my lifeline here because humor has always been a big part of my healing. Like I've always loved comedy. I've always loved just everything that, that can make me laugh. And so the fact that she would, you know, she did little, I would come across these little bits of like, you know, little skits that she did as she was like kind of coming up, you know, before she got to SNL, you know, she did little skits about like making fun of like lesbian culture and her queerness and just being silly. And, and so getting to see this expression of lesbianism, that was just so fun and silly and playful, you know, just, she's just being a goofball was so relatable to me. And then on top of that, you know, she's someone who, if you've ever seen any like cast uh, interviews for Ghostbusters and or even SNL, she's very like cuddly with her co-star. She's very touchy feely. She's very, you know, just a very sweet, wholesome way. 
you know, because one of the negative messages I'd internalized is like, okay, if, if you are attracted to women, then every interaction you have with another woman is sexual. You are sexualizing that woman. And I was like, I don't want to sexualize other women. I don't, you know, like, I don't, I don't want to be sexualized. I don't want to sexualize other women. I just want to, like, I want friends. I want platonic relationships with other women. And so seeing Kate just interact with her co-stars and be just so physically platonically warm and just cuddly and, and just, and just sweet, you know, she was just proving wrong. So many of the negative stereotypes that I internalized about what it means to be a lesbian. And so that was, you know, I basically just kind of immersed myself in Tumblr and, and queer content and a lot of just like Kate McKinnon, um, just because it was like, it was at that point, that was my ammunition against all of these internal messages of shame and all of that. And so, you know, I did, I wrote some blog posts and I would just kind of like journal my thoughts and then I post it and then people would comment and, and be like, oh my God, I feel the same way. And like, thank you for putting this into words. And like, I'm not the only lesbian who feels this way. I'm not the only queer person who feels this way. And so that just really helped, you know, and, and also going back to the comedy piece, like being able to, when you're scared of something, it's big and it's scary. And if you can laugh at it, you can't be laughing at something that you're scared of. Like once you're laughing at something, it no longer has that control over you. It's no longer scary. And so getting to just laugh and like make silly jokes about, you know, like, oh my God, why are we such useless lesbians? And like, you know, and just like, even just learning all of like the memes, like gay memes were just like so valuable to me in my healing process. And it sounds so silly, but like it really was. So yeah, so that helped immensely. Let's talk about going back to your mom with this new revelation that, yes, exactly. hey, it's been three years. You told me to pack it away. I did. I pulled it back out. Kate McKinnon and I, she changed my life. I've got some news for you. How did your mother, yes. the person who's like the best so, number one person, take this? So on paper, she's very liberal. She's very, you know, she's a feminist. She's LGBTQ positive, all that stuff on paper. When I told her, I was like, I'm actually, you know, a lesbian. She took it well. Like she, she was like, you know, I'm, well, that's, you know, I'm so glad that you sorted that out, you know, kind of thing. As I started to unlearn all of that, I spent more time on Tumblr, just on, in these online spaces. And so, because I was finding a lot of comfort and reassurance and empathy and all of that online, which previously I'd only felt that sort of like comfort and, and like, sense of like, you know, compassion, empathy from my mom. So, you know, I come home and instead of even like pulling up my computer to like send my mom a long email about my day, I would just go online and I would just go on Tumblr and I would just reblog, you know? So overall I was communicating with her much less overall as a sort of byproduct of me being like, this is, I need to work on this. I need to unlearn a lot of this. I need to heal a lot of this. And this is a type of healing that for the first time in my life, mom, had no input on she had no point of reference so it again it like forced a little bit more distance between us because this was kind of consuming I was going through like a second puberty is what it felt like you know it yeah. was just kind of consuming obviously I was you know working and you know being a normal adult at work but in my like off hours this was consuming my life in a good way you know I was just like finally allowing myself to like be immersed in queer culture and 
learn my culture as a gay person. Absolutely. And, you know, and like and, be, yeah. immerse yourself in the gay culture, the memes, yes. the supportive education, yes. not just yes, like, oh, exactly. I'm so proud of you, sweetie, but like, we're so proud of you. And here's something that you might be interested in because it, it intersects with another gay culture interest you might have. And you're going exactly. down these rabbit holes and these spirals. And that's just not something someone who's not in that culture would understand or even be able to point you in the right direction. So absolutely, absolutely. connecting absolutely. way more with that community that's providing something in return absolutely. so that you can really forge and create your identity in the space. Absolutely. And so I think that that what you know that distance was bothering her, but then she couldn't she couldn't say it outright. You know, she couldn't really, you know, I was walking home from work and I was talking to her on the phone and she at that point was in a writing group and there was another woman there who was like around my age who is, you know, is very like outspoken feminist, very like high energy sort of person, which is the kind of personality I love to be friends with. All of us kind of have, you know, a type of energy that we find more attractive platonically, like as friends and a type of energy that we find more romantically attractive. And so mom was describing this woman to me and saying like, you know, I would love to like give her your information because I think you'd really get along as friends. She was kind of going into kind of a, a, a cycle where she was like repeating herself a lot of being like, no, I don't even know if she's gay. Like, I don't, I'm not trying to like make you date her. Like, I, I don't even know if she's gay or even if she is, I don't know if she's single, but like, I just, I think that, you know, you just get, get along really well, but like, I don't, I'm not trying to make you date each other, whatever. And I was like, okay, like I get it. Like, you know, so I agreed with her and I was like, to be completely honest, based on how you're describing her vibe, she sounds like the kind of person I would love to be friends with. She doesn't sound like the kind of person that I find romantically attractive because I'm romantically attracted to a more uh, grounded sort of like even keel sort of energy, uh, which is very much my current girlfriend. She is amazing and I love her and she very much is that energy. I, I was trying to like agree with my mom and be like, it's okay. Like you don't have to keep repeating yourself. Like I, I agree with you. And mom flipped out at that. And, and again, this is an example of how like we would get into fights. Like, literally, how did we get here? Like, how, how is this a fight? How did we get into a fight? But she, she just flipped out at that and was like, how dare you judge her before you've even met her? You don't know. You may be the perfect couple, but you won't even give her a chance. You're judging. Her. And I was like, first of all, I never said I would never date her. Like it wasn't like a, you know what I mean? I just like, I've never met her. Like, I don't know her. How could I say one way or the other? I was like, you were the one who brought up dating as like, we probably would be better off as friends. I was agreeing with you based on the information you had given me. Like, I don't understand how we're fighting. But she like was not, she was on a tirade. How dare you? Da, 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 da. And then she called me a dyke bitch. And that stopped me in my tracks. Oh my because God. I, so per, as a word, I enjoy the word. I use the word of my queer friends. I use the word of my girlfriend. I think it's fun to say. I like the word. I've reclaimed that word personally, but it's you know, it's all about how you mean it, right? And so I, when I'm using that with my friends, with my girlfriend, I'm saying it with love, with playfulness, right? She's using it as an insult. And I, I, I said, please don't call me that. And she's like, why? Which you shouldn't have to ask. If you're asking someone why you shouldn't call them a slur, just hold up, back up a few steps, reconsider your life choices. But anyway, I was like, why? And I was like, well, because I'm actively unlearning a lot of negativity around my identity. And it's really, really important for me to not, like, especially right now, it's really important for me to not 
connect or attach my identity as a lesbian with anything negative. Like I need, it needs to be black and white. Like I need to only like identify um, and, and connect positive things with my identity. I said, if you think I'm being a bitch, call me a bitch, which again, if you're calling your child a bitch, stop, reconsider your life choices. But my point is that at that time I was so like, it was so important to me that she not use homophobic slurs. I was like, if you want to call me a bitch, I'm letting you like, whatever, like you can call me a bitch. I'm saying that if you really want to call me a name, then just call me a bitch. But please do not bring my sexuality into this. That is more important. What is most important to me right now is that you don't bring my sexuality into this. It's just, it's just strange. It's just so toxic and so narcissistic to, to throw that in your face, to, to be supportive on paper, to be like, look, I'm trying to find you a friend and then to not get the results she wants and to just immediately spiral into slurs and offensive name calling. Like it's, and it's your mother. Yeah. Yeah. I, she had, I mean, she had been using really aggressive, horrendous language against me practically my whole life. Um, And so that's why I, I was kind of numb to it. It's just with this particular thing, I was like, wait, like this is, this is something you shouldn't be doing. This is something I know you shouldn't be doing. Um, and so her response was, well, I just, I can't talk to you if you're going to police my language like that. And so then I was like, fine. And I, like, I hung up on her and like, that was a, that, that was a moment. Like that was a like, holy shit. Like I never, I didn't think that she would do that. And, you know, I think anyone who's been in an abusive relationship and left, there's been at least one moment where they do something that you're like, I never thought you would do that. And it just, it just like, it, it's really jarring in a way that like, either that ends up being uh, the prompt for you to leave, or even if you don't leave at the time, it haunts you and it keeps gaining momentum over time until like it builds on other, I didn't think you'd do this moments until you leave. So yeah. that was, that was one of those moments for me. So, you know, after that, it was, I was like, okay, well now I know that I'm not going to talk to mom about my queerness. Like I can't trust her with that part of myself. And then that gave me permission to not share certain parts of myself with her. And so that, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of a snowball effect. Plus after I realized that she couldn't really be trusted uh, in that way, I was like, okay, well, I need someone to talk to. And so that I was like, you know what, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an adult, I can find a therapist. And I did, I went and I found a therapist. Um, and for anyone out there who's nervous about finding a therapist, or, you know, wants to finding a therapist is kind of like dating, like you kind of have to go through a lot of like first times before you find the one, like you're going to be on in and like talking to someone, you're really like, oh, it's not a vibe. Nope, we don't gel. We don't nope, this is not a match. And then you eventually find someone you click with. So that's, that's, you know, that's what happened. I met with different people, didn't work out, finally found a therapist who was really helpful. And then she was my therapist for up until very recently. She, um, she like, you know, retired. And then I recently found a new one who's also incredible and amazing. And I'm very lucky to have. So that therapist, you know, she really, she helped me so much um, with, on learning shame. And when I started going to her, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm gay and I need to come to terms with this and I'm working on this. 
but as any, again, as anyone who's, who has abusive parents knows, and you know, who then has gone to therapy, you know, you start going for something else. And then before you know it, you're like, oh yeah, the way my mom talks to me is maybe not okay. And then it just kind of kept going from there. And I started to see, I started to see more cracks and I started to kind of see more. And I started also just gain a sense of identity, gain a sense of self, uh, realize that I'm not a bad person. One of the big moments for me was when I was, you know, I, I wanted to vent about something that, about a fight that mom and I had recently gotten into. And, but I was prefacing the story with all of these, like, just, you know, like my mom cares a lot. She wants the best for me. Like she, she's just trying to like protect me from self-sabotage and all of that, da, 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 you know, and like, she's not a bad person. And my therapist stopped me. She's like, you like, you don't have to explain your mom's actions. You get to just tell me the story. Like if you say something that's off, I'll determine whether you say something that's off. My therapist was just massively helpful in helping me trust myself and trust my intuition. And I started to realize that all of this anger that I had in all of these instances where mom would get upset at me, like that anger was valid. That was a self-protection mechanism. Um, and that anger is valuable. reasons that I love pink is before I even found a therapist, I had gotten into pink uh, and her music. It was like right after uh, I had ended things with the abusive ex, I found pink's Funhouse album. And I just like, you know, I had $20 of birthday money, just like burning a hole in my pocket. So I was like, sure, I'll buy this album. She looks cool. And I just like fell in love. Um, it was very similar to like where it was with uh, Jillian Holtzman, but it was just more just like, I just love her as a person. I just love her music. You know, I was watching interviews with her and she helped me before I was ready to face the abuse that I was actively experiencing at the hands of my mom. Pink and her music helped validate the anger that I was feeling in response to the abuse. And so I wasn't at the time, like I wasn't ready to reconcile, okay, like my anger is okay, which means the abuse is not okay. Like I wasn't able to like kind of make that jump yet. But her music at least allowed me to feel like, okay, my anger is okay. Like I'm not, I'm not a bad person for feeling angry or sad. Cause that was the other thing, you know, with my mom, I wasn't allowed to feel angry. And I wasn't allowed to feel sad. And Pink has a lot of angry, sad songs. And she has a lot of happy songs that hold space for anger and sadness while being happy. So that was really helpful and healing. And so, you know, fast forward to, um, you know, to, to being in therapy and coming to terms with my identity as a lesbian and, and healing. Um, and I, <laughs> I even did some, I, I wrote some standup about it and I like, you know, performed it at some like little, little open mic thing. That was really fun. I just released a lot of that trauma. I, I think the anger stage is such an important stage. You know, you don't want to stay there too long, but it is a very integral and important stage in your grief. Like you yes. have to come to terms with and sometimes it's hard to look at your abuser because it's someone you love or it's your mom yes. and you have to come to terms with it and go, but you did this. 
And because of this, I am this way, or because of this, this is what happened. And that there's room for anger. I didn't have to do this, or I didn't have to go through this. And there's anger and there's mourning. And and you have like, it's so important. And it's tough and it's rough. I remember going through it. I've been through it multiple times with abusive relationships. It's a very important thing. And I think each time you learn a little bit more about yourself and you hopefully you don't make the same mistakes again, but I can't promise anything. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Anger is such a useful emotion. And and especially anyone who is like raised as female is very discouraged from having anger and very shamed for like feeling angry. But anger is just a response to your boundaries being crossed. You know, for me, I also have anger issues. So sometimes to me, when it feels like a boundary is being crossed, like there's something happening, but I feel the urge to respond in a way that's like not proportional to the boundary crossing that's happening. And therapy has helped me with that. Like as much as (laughs) I've had anger issues since I was a kid and, you know, as much as my mom was kept promising that her, you know, she was helping me to like, she didn't help me do shit with my anger. Like she didn't help me at all. She only made it worse. And when I started going to therapy, that's when I started to be like, Oh, this, okay. Like, this is what working on my anger issues really looks like. This is what working on my stuff really looks like. Yeah. You know, it's almost like when people aren't ready to like work on their baggage and what they've unpacked away, they kind of like to help you pack your baggage up real nice and neat and set it right next to theirs. Like, look at how nice. Let me teach you how to fold it real nice. You're like, I don't want to fold it. I want to process through this. Like, no, it looks so much better when it's all folded and neat and nice next to mine. You're like, no, 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 no. I'm going to therapy. I don't want to pack my baggage. I want to yeah. unpack my baggage. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. No, and absolutely. I, I do feel like a lot of times when you're trying to get out of bad spaces or you're actively doing things to correct things and, and, and learn to be better and to do better, that people that you're close to that maybe aren't ready for you to do that will often do the same. Like they'll discourage you from getting help or they'll discourage you from talking about that or we'll talk about it later. Or I don't want to do that. And oh, um, I've noticed that I've, I've lost oh, yeah. friends because I want to move on from things and grow from things. And um, you know, they, they're just not ready for that. And that's okay. You know, you can lead people to water, you can hold their head under it, but you can't force them to drink it. And I just sort of realized that um, I, I don't want to live that way. And I don't, I don't want to force anybody to do anything they don't want to do. I just, I want to create a space that is welcoming and um, and safe. And if people want to come along, then great. And if you're not ready for it, that's fine too. Absolutely. Oh, 100, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So what has your life been like since setting these boundaries since, and moving forward from abuse in your life? It's been so much better. And I, I started to recognize, wait, the less that my mom is in my life, the happier I am, actually. This is not, this is not what I've been taught my whole life. Yeah. And I realized, wait a minute, like she's, when I just, when I just follow my own intuition, that is the best route for me to take. You know, also, you know, after coming out, I had various relationships. um, And then I met Jackie, who's the woman I'm with now. And it's been so healing to practice healthy conflict resolution with her. 
because obviously, you know, we're both human. We both got baggage, but it's every time that something comes up, every time that we are, you know, in some, we don't really get into fights, but just like anytime there's tension, there's conflict. I can see the like, okay, my mom would do this, but I'm doing this. And I can just see everything. It just, it makes sense. Everything is just making sense. I'm using things I've learned from my therapist. And also even like (laughs) my mom, my mom's been helpful in terms of knowing what not to do. You know, it's like, okay, well, when, you know, mom and I were in a fight and, you know, I would just want to hear these words from her. So it's like, okay, well then let me, let me tell those words to my girlfriend. It's just, it's so healing to, to do that healing in the context of a relationship, you know, and that sort of healing, you know, it doesn't have to be a romantic partner. It can be a best friend. It, it can be a mentor. It can be, you know, anyone, a therapist, anyone who is healthy and, you know, where you can work on your stuff together. Been so helpful. Yeah. The uh, phrase that I am horrible about because of how I was raised um, is saying, sorry. Like I apologize for everything, everything. And then I apologize for apologizing um, because I was raised with a mother who liked to play the silent treatment game for weeks on end. Like, I wish I was joking weeks on end. And um, I would come to my dad and be like, you know, and he would come to me like, you just need to apologize because she would ice him out. She would ice out everybody. Like yeah. it, like it would just get worse each day. Right. Yep. The more I held out and I was like, but I didn't do anything. And my dad would be like, you did something. And I'm like, I, but I don't know what I did. And he goes, you know what I've learned? It doesn't matter. You just say you're sorry and it goes away. And so I know my dad was trying to like instill some sort of survival skill for whatever he had had to deal with for so long. And I appreciate the sentiment, but like at the same time, it was bad advice. Um, And so I went through my whole life fixing things and then apologizing and being like, does this Band-Aid work for you? I'm so sorry. What else can I do for you to make you happy? Are you happy yet? What else can I do? What else can I do to the detriment of myself? And I've lived by this mantra probably for about a year or so. And I've stopped setting myself on fire to keep other people warm. And Absolutely. that was something that I, I had to actively learn because I was chastised as a child and a teen and a young adult for not doing what someone else hoped I would. And so I always was apologizing for something. I, I didn't even know what I had done wrong or what I hadn't done or what I had done because there was no parameter for that. It was just like, you done fucked up A.A. Ron and you better say sorry. And I'm like, but I don't know what I did. And for someone who had undiagnosed ADHD and a neurodivergent brain, that's like, just tell me what I did wrong and I'll fix it. When there's no answer, it was maddening oh, to my absolutely. formidable years. Absolutely. What's so And something that's so fascinating is, so the symptoms of CPTSD or complex PTSD and the symptoms of ADHD have so much overlap. And so I like, I truly don't know. I know I have complex PTSD. I don't know if I have ADHD or if I just have all the symptoms because of my CPTSD, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And then, you know, being in an MLM sort of just reignited that entire like bonfire of bullshit all over again. And that was sort of where that's really where everything unraveled for me. Because it was seeing 
the big picture. Because when it was small, when it was just one-on-one, it was just things that was happening to just me and this gaslighting. And I didn't say that. And that's not what I meant, whatever. And I was like, maybe I'm the crazy one. But in a huge instance where I could be like, that happened to you too? They're like, mm-hmm. Am I going to happen to you too? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so we're not crazy? Mm-mm. I could see it, the big picture. And then I was yes. able to par it down and I was able to see it in the relationships I was having with my husband, with my mother, with different friends that I had allowed to take advantage of me, clients I had allowed to take advantage of me, demanding of my time for hair emergencies, wherever the fuck that is. You know, I'm like, your bangs are not more important than my life, Becky. I'm sorry. Exactly. That sort of stuff. I finally saw it because I had to go through the biggest ringer for me to see the intersectionality of narcissism and just control and gaslighting on a smaller scale where I'm like, oh, I've experienced this before my whole fucking life. Yep. Absolutely. And I never knew what it was. Yeah. It's very much like if, like, if you grew up never learning that like red was like a different color, like you just, you saw things that were red all the time, but like you didn't, weren't taught that that was, there's a word for it. It's red. And then you're eventually taught, like, this is what red is. This is what red looks like. Then you're like, oh, wait, I'm seeing red every, I'm seeing the red flags everywhere. I'm, I, I know what that is now. It's not just, it's not just part of the backdrop. You start to see it. Right. You can pick it out. And then you can also sort of predict it as well, because these are cycles. Here comes that. I just wanted to take you out to lunch and see how you've been. Or I ordered two of these by accident. (laughs) So that sort of stuff. Um, Oh my God. The way, the way that my mom repeated, because obviously as I'm going through this therapy, I'm pulling, I'm pulling away. Right. And not only am I pulling away, but I'm also saying like, Hey, you did this, you did this stuff. That was messed up. You know, in the past, she would not, she would never take any accountability. She would never admit that any of it was messed up. And she has said, as you read the book, you'll see, she said some messed up stuff and she's done some messed up stuff. And there's stuff she did when I was really, really young that I learned about after the fact that I didn't even include in the book because I like my book to be, I like to be in, in chronological order. All of that, not, none of it. She was, none of it was bad. None of it. She was not willing to take ownership of any of it. But this time I was like, okay, I don't care if you take ownership of it. Like it was abuse and I'm calling it abuse, even though you won't. And I'm also distancing myself from you. So I'm, I'm not, you're, you don't have access to me anymore. And the way that I could just see, she would just, tra- she wouldn't fight me. She would, she would transition into love bombing. And it's like, okay, so if you, and like started, that's what, that's when she started apologizing. When I was, when I was withdrawing my, my presence from her life over a prolonged period of time. And I was like, oh, okay, huh. But so like me being honest with you and open with you about how much pain and trauma and everything that your abuse caused, that's not, no. But that like, that doesn't, that doesn't change your behavior. That doesn't even get an apology from you. But if I just remove myself from your life, that's when, because I was her emotional support eldest daughter, that's, that's when the abuse cycle goes into love bombing. Then, oh, so now you're apologizing. You're not apologizing because you hurt me. You're apologizing because I'm not there for you anymore. At first, I suspected that's what it was, but I was like, okay, 
maybe she has seen the light. Maybe, you know, so I'd give her another chance. You know, we would talk more often. And then once she would get comfortable with our relationship, suddenly it's, you know, resuming to like a, a level that she's comfortable with. We get in a fight and she does the character assassinations and the swearing and the sexual language, which was like part of the abuse. She used really, a, really intense swearing and really sexual uh, abusive language when she was mad, you know, and then I'd be like, that's messed up. Instead of, instead of like just believing I deserved it, I was like, I don't deserve this. I'm going to hang up on you. We're not, I'm not, not going to talk to you. So I withdraw. And then she apologizes. She love bombs. She claims that she understands now. She apologizes. Da, da, da. It's just a cycle. And I, I give her like a couple more chances. And each time I'm just like, here we go again. But I give her a couple more chances. And then I'm like, okay, this is time. Your apologies don't mean anything. Nothing's really happening. Nothing's changing. So are you completely no contact? Are you low contact? What, what I'm goes very there? low. I'm very low contact. Currently, we are at a phase where, so basically what happened was I read Stephanie Fu's incredible book, What My Bones Know. And as I was reading it, there was a part of me that was like, maybe if mom reads this book, this will validate some of her feelings. It'll prompt, like it's, there's a part of me that like still feels responsible for her emotional well-being. Like it's still there. There's that inner child that is like still holding on to what she was taught and still combination of holding on to what she's taught also a combination of like when you are a child you want your parents to be happy you really want that and you and and seeing her suffering due to her own generational trauma is sad and it does make me sad and i have that empathy and i there is that inner child part of me that's like but maybe i could just help mom and it's like you can't like you know um it's very much it's like very much like a horror movie. I feel like anyone who's been in an abusive situation knows what it feels like to be in a horror movie where, you know what I mean? You have like a shapeshifter, you know what I mean? A Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde situation where it's like, oh, but they, okay, but I think they get it. Like, I think we can trust them. It's like, do not go into their house. You will be tortured again. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, they seem really friendly now, but they still have a dungeon in their basement and they're going to chain you there if you give them the chance. You need to leave. Like, you know, what I mean? you need to keep your distance. You can talk to them from across the field. You know what I mean? Like, you need to maintain that. So uh, there's a part, like, as I'm reading it, it's like, it's eating away at me. And I'm like, I, I have to tell her about this book. And so I tell her about the book and she reads it. And she, once again, like, she claims that now she gets it. I am just so emotionally fatigued from all of the chances I've given her that I am, you know, I, I can't emotionally invest in a relationship at this point. You know, do I believe that there is a small chance that reading that book really changed something for her? You know, you know, never say never. I hope it did. I hope it helped her. Um, so that's, it's, we're in this sort of like this very low contact sort of, sort of phase. And, and because we're very low contact, you know, that we're, if I'm right, you know, we're still in that love bombing phase. Like, cause I don't, I don't communicate with her often enough that she can feel comfortable and then, and then go into the like a more abuse part of the abuse cycle. So we just kind of, we just, we just kind of stay in the top part over here and kind of, you know, go back and forth. So you sent me a copy of your book and I was reading it and the, I, I wanted to read 
this part that really just struck me so much. And I just, I almost cried and it's right at the beginning of your book. So I'm just a softy, but there's a poem at the beginning called an insider's guide to erasing self-hatred. And sometimes when I like learn things about like self-hatred and internalized fat phobia and internalized misogyny and all of these things, and I'm like, oh my God, that's, that it's me. That's how I was raised. And like, I've been breaking these. So to see something like this, like, again, I'm like, "Ah, I'm so seen. This quote is just, it's beautiful. So it says like lasering off a shitty tattoo, it will hurt like fucking hell. And even after the last session, it will never completely go away. And Eden, it just, in four lines, it's just, it encompasses everything that I feel about the journey that I've had to go on personally. And it made me go, oh yeah, this is the book for me. Like this story, I'm going to relate to this. I'm going to cry. I cried already in the first chapter. I was crying because I was connecting. I was connecting Abby to you and like myself to your dad and like this very supportive parent who just wants to it just and who's floundering and figuring things out on their own too. Like I just, it was, it's so beautiful. And so I, I just wanted to say thank you for having the courage to write it and um, let us know where we can find that so that, that yeah, everyone can so- read that as well. Yeah. Um, so it'll be like officially released a February 22nd. How cathartic was it writing down your story? Oh, incredible. And what actually prompted me to write this, uh, was I read Jeanette McCurdy's, uh, I'm glad my mom died. And I was going to ask you if you had yeah. read that and then were recommended if yes. you hadn't. Yes. Oh my God. It's incredible. Uh, I read it in like a day, like a day and a half and it, it stuck with me. And then I, like it was within like a couple weeks of that, uh, that I was, I was being interviewed on a different podcast, just about my like coming out later in life experience. And the host of that podcast and I, like after the recording finished, we just like talked like a half hour afterwards about growing up with narcissistic moms and, you know, doing all that healing and stuff. And so like, I just read Jeanette's book and we had had that conversation and things were starting to click. And I was like, I think I have, like, I think I have enough stories to write a book. I think I could write a book. And I just, just, again, it's the ADHD hyper-focus. Uh, in five days, I wrote 25,000 words. And that was basically the first draft of the book. And then over the next like one or two months, it was probably a couple months, you know, I was editing and I hired an editor um, and she helped me immensely. Um, I give her a shout out in the, in the gratitude part of the book at the very end, you know, and I got, oh, I got beta readers. Um, I, you know, I got people who were interested in reading an advanced copy and writing reviews on Instagram. Like I just, I put all that together, um, you know, while editing and adding stories and stuff. Um, so, so yeah, so the, there's that. <laughs> yeah, it just, I loved Jeanette's book. If anybody has not read it or wants to read, like Jeanette McCurdy, I loved her before. I am madly in love with her now. Like, I was like, I knew I liked her the best for a reason. Like, she's just, I had no idea she was Mormon. I had no idea about everything. It just, I mean, and she, you know what? She was so. Here's the other thing. You write a tell-all where you're a celebrity and you are having relationships and, you know, it's like very Taylor Swift. Roman's like, what songs that, who's that about? She was so classy. 
to tell her stories and to explain and like with juicy details, but you don't really know who any of these people are because she sort of just changes enough that she keeps everyone private and anonymous. So you, you get this very inside look into her bedroom, but at the same time, like it's still very respectful. And I just, I was like, she's so, I just really like Jeanette McCurdy. And if anybody knows her and can me an interview I would love to talk to her she I literally I finished the book and I was like I need to talk to Jeanette like I need to talk to her fantastic book so relatable so amazing um and just just yeah so I'm so happy to hear that you felt just as inspired I was like I need to write a book too I felt so inspired yeah no I I adore her I've watched interviews with her um and yeah I just I love how she talks about certain things and yeah I, she's an incredibly talented writer and I hear rumors that um she's interested in like writing more like fiction and I think I mean she's such a talented writer I think she'd just be amazing at that so I'm I'm down to read whatever she writes I am I am such a fan I just I loved I loved it it was funny it was cheeky the title was great anybody that has an abusive situation like it's just it's just someone was like oh my god I can't believe she named it that and I was like no it's perfect like it's it's a classic those who get it get it if you get it you get it if you know you know absolutely so let's do some rapid fire questions about one-on-one culty abusive relationships what is one word that encompasses how you feel about a a one-on-one abusive relationship hell it's hellish Uh, what is one warning to somebody who you know has a parent or is in a relationship like this and is seeing some red flags we talked about today and is ignoring them and is going it's not it's not that bad for me you know everybody's gonna take their journey in their own time this also applies to anyone who is starting to come out or questioning that everyone takes their own time continue to continue to pursue what speaks to your soul because whether it's worse than you think, or it's not following your intuition is going to lead you to the support that you need and the resources that you need. Yeah. I I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, I don't really know how to change the worst. So we're just going to, we're just going to, I'm just going to ask you about your opinions about MLMs. What's the worst MLM in your opinion? Okay. So I'm totally biased because I am a personal trainer. I particularly hate the health focused ones um, because they are, obviously I'm passionate about health and fitness. And I think that there's so much healing to be found in connecting with your body and finding strength and learning how to move your body safely, not just for health, but for longevity. And the, the ways that these different MLMs, whether it's Octavia with their starvation diets, or it's beach body with these stupid workouts that are more likely to cause the in theoretically they're more, I don't want to get sued, but the, the, the beach body workouts that theoretically are more likely to, to cause an injury that actually get you healthier. It's just, mm, I don't, those particularly, I, I, I particularly dislike those. I, uh, I agree with you. And the more that I learn 
getting back into like my fitness journey and like hiking and stuff, like the more, more BS I see, because it's just, I'm like in it even more. It's just, ugh. Uh, so what was the hardest lesson that you learned in your journey with your mother? There was a moment, I don't know if this is necessarily the hardest, but there was a moment that struck me particularly hard where I just, it just snapped for me. It just clicked for me. She's never going to see you the way that you want her to see you. Um, and I just, this is before I like really started to like distance myself from her. Um, but it was definitely a huge part of that process. And I was just, it just, we were in a fight over something incredibly stupid. I, I tell the story in my book. And I just like, she's never going to see you the way you want her to see you. And what was the positive takeaway from this experience? I feel like there's probably a lot, actually. Oh, yeah, there's so many. You know, there, the fact that I'm not alone. And it sounds, again, it sounds funny, but like when I found the anti MLM movement, I just, I deep dived into it because there were so much overlap between you know, these survivors of business cults and me who has survived like a, a sort of a cult of one. I also love that there's within the anti-MLM community, there's room for humor because again, like comedy has always been a huge part of my healing journey. Um, if it wasn't for comedian Kate McKinnon, I might still be closeted. Um, so comedy has been such a valuable part of my healing. And I really respect that there's room for that within the anti-MLM community. I love that. I, I I love that. That's it's like something that I think is so great is there are so many voices. And because there are so many voices and there are so many different types of media and there's so many different ways to connect, that so many people are able to connect and to see different things and to see it like on a larger scale, being like, oh my God, did you see what happened in LuLaRoe? Did you watch Lula Rich? And then you're like, you watch it and you go, oh my God, like that kind of happened when I was dating like my last boyfriend or when I was married or I kind of had a parent like that, that did that kind of stuff. And it, it really like it, it normalizes views on like such a big level that you're able to sort of look if it wasn't for Mike and Leah, like I probably wouldn't have even realized that LuLaRoe was a cult or that MLM was a cult. And I might not be where I am today. I, I could have just been like, well, I was just a failure. I guess I can't sell pants and just moved on. It's. I think it's just so important that the, the community is here for everyone and everyone has a voice and you're able to connect with whoever you connect with. Because I, I mean, I get emails where people are like, I'm on episode 137 and I finally connected. I've been obsessed with your podcast for weeks and months and whatever. And I was never, I never connected in an episode. This one, I was like, uh oh. And so, you know, it's just, sometimes it's that little tiny difference. Absolutely. And that's why I say like, just follow what speaks to you when you connect with something, whether it's, you know, an artist or a piece of art or a podcast, when you connect with something that is telling you something really deeply valuable, follow that. Yeah. It's served me really well. It seems to have served you really well. And I mean, you talk to people who are successful and you ask them their advice and they say, just keep going, just keep following that, follow that spark, follow that passion, keep it up, you know, find something you love to do and you, you never have to work. I love 
doing this. I love recording. I love talking to people like you. I love editing. I love creating. It doesn't feel like a job, but it is. And I'm so thankful. And it's just like the coolest thing. And you get to be this personal trainer who's like so body positive of of all genders and all inclusivity and all bodies. And it's just, it's such a beautiful thing. And it just, it just makes me so happy and warm inside. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And, and I feel the same way. And that also is, you know, part of why I wrote this book is because I have benefited so much from people telling their stories about their struggles, about their healing, about all of that. I consider, you know, Pink's music to be, what is a song, but just a three minute story. So I've benefited so much from that, from, you know, Jeanette McCurdy's book. And so this book that I've written is, is my contribution back into that cycle from which I've benefited so much. I can't wait to finish it. I'm so excited. Thank you so, so, so much, Eden, for coming and spending the day with me to talk to us and to educate us on something that we haven't been able to talk about yet. So I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast and my advocacy at The Real Roberta Blevins. You can find all of the links to the social accounts in our show notes. And if you just listened to that incredible story and you thought, oh my God, I have a story just like that that needs to be told, hit me up, therealrobertablevins at gmail.com. I would love to have you on the show to share your story and start your journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. <laughs>